Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Heaven, and I am a fourth year medical student, nearly graduated medical student um, at Nova Southeastern University. Yep, and I'm Matthew, same school, Nova Southeastern University, we're part of the, the second class graduating, so a lot of excitement going on, on around right now, and I think we're most of us are at the point in our fourth years where we're starting to, to wind down a little bit, and then you just have the kind of the looming of, of residency coming up. But I think right now we're we're in kind of the sweet spot. Yeah, and uh, and thank you guys so much for joining us today. Um, so this is the fourth and final part of our series um, where we've really just been taking a look back on our experiences and trying to give advice that we wish we knew earlier throughout the process. Um, the, the entire four years of medical school has a lot of different details that you need to be aware of and things to plan for. Um, so the, the objective of what we were trying to do here was just to make your life a little bit easier, know what you're getting into, and, and really help set you up for success. Um, so our what we decided to discuss for our last episode is kind of something that was very recently on our minds was was just more um, general aspects about about the application process, like how to find the right residency program for you. Um, some, and then we also wanted to discuss some different aspects of like tips for interviewing, um, especially in the modern age where you have this weird hybrid, depending on the specialty, where some are in person, some are virtual. Um, there's just a lot to, to consider from those. So we wanted to give our thoughts after just going through a long interview season. Um, and then lastly, we also want to hit on how to think about and how to plan for um, putting your rank order list and submitting that. Um, and as well, we also wanted to touch on how the match algorithm is really created and how it works. Um, because something that we found is a lot of medical students, a lot of our peers, including ourselves up to a certain point, um, were pretty lost about what matching actually means. It was just some magical computer just tells you where you're going and that's the end of it. Um, so we wanted to discuss that with you guys as well. Um, so first, I guess we can go ahead and jump right in. Um, so the first thing we want to discuss is really how to find the right residency program for you. Um, because it's, I mean, you, the, all the programs are ranking their applicants. They're all trying to figure out who's the right applicant. But at the end of the day, the interview process works two ways. Um, and you want to try and figure out where you're going to be happiest, where you're going to succeed, and what's going to ultimately get you where you want to be career-wise. Um, so it's, it's a lot to consider. So we kind of have a few steps in the process of how to kind of consider and find the right program for you. Um, and then we'll kind of outline those steps and then go into them a little bit more in depth. Yeah, that definitely sounds good. I think there's definitely, like we keep saying this and it's almost become a little bit redundant at this point, there's definitely an individual aspect to all of this for people, but we're going to try our very best to kind of come up with just, again, the skeleton of kind of just, these are some generally good principles to go about doing in terms of evaluating this, because this is a tremendously huge decision and everything that goes into selecting the programs that you apply to, um, choosing the interviews that you want to go on, um, how you go about preparing those interviews and ultimately preparing your rank order list is going to determine 
where you're going to be for a significant portion of your life. So you just have to make sure that you're aware of kind of everything that goes into it. And hopefully us, us talking today can give you a, a little bit of a good idea of kind of some good policies and some good prescriptions that you should be going through for that. And then kind of hearing our own personal experience with it too, in terms of you can kind of see somebody taking the generally accepted good ideas and how they applied it to themselves. So we really do hope this helps out. And that's an excellent point, Matt. Thank you for bringing that up because, yeah, there's there's no one-size-fits-all. Um, we're just trying to show you guys some possible ideas, and hopefully you can test them out. And if you like them, that's great. If not, find what works for you, and that that's all you need to do at the end of the day. Um, so at least as far as what I personally thought was kind of the order of how I can figure out, is this residency program kind of right for me, and just throughout the application process, um, so first and foremost, you got to look inside yourself, see what you really need, you know, set personal goals for yourself. Um, and then once you are able to, to identify and kind of have a rough idea of what you're actually looking for, then you dive right in and start learning about the residency programs themselves. Um, and then after you, you have a good idea about and you're learning about these different programs, there will be a bajillion of them throughout the country. Um, so you want to try and keep them straight. So you'll build a list of, of programs and just ha keep everything as organized as possible. At least that I found that to be very, very helpful. Um, and then once you, you actually make that program list that you think will be a good fit for you, then you go ahead and apply. You have that interview process. Then you submit your rank order list, the program submit their applicant list, and then you finally have that magical day of matching. <laughs> so it's, it's a long process. Um, it definitely felt longer at certain times than others. Um, but so we'll kind of jump into these different steps um, and, and hopefully you guys can get something useful out of it. So as far as the first step for figuring out what residency is going to work with you, what's going to actually help you achieve your goals, you got to identify and set those personal goals for yourself. Um, so everyone has different needs. Everyone is trying to go different places, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of this process is there is so much variety. There are so many options to choose from. There is a right spot for you. Uh, the struggle is actually finding it, <laughs> you know, and that can definitely seem overwhelming. Um, but there are some very helpful tools that we'll get into later as well to, to help figure that out. But first off, you want to try and set personal goals. Um, so Matt, when you were considering what you wanted in a residency program, what were some goals for yourself that you like really thought you needed? Yeah, I think for myself, I think it really started with talking with my fiance in terms of coming up with a blueprint for where we wanted to be in the country. I've talked about this a little bit before, but there was definitely a geographic preference in terms of kind of Southeast. And we really had four states and we kind of had like a tiered system of states that we wanted to end up in where we kind of had our first tier, our second tier and our third tier. And we kind of had that going in before I went on any of my rotations before we did any submissions for for ERAS or anything like that. So we really had a lot of different discussions, debated back and forth. It was a pretty fluid list for a while. And then we finally really settled in on, do you know what, this is where we would be comfortable living geographically in terms of it's close to my family, it's close to her family. It's a place that we'd like to live 
it's not too cold for her. She's not a big snow fan, apparently. So <laughs> definitely trying to, to shy away from the snow as much as possible. But she does like seasons. So again, I don't know how you go from Colorado to absolutely hating snow, but it's <laughs> a little bit beyond me. But definitely kind of narrowing down in terms of the different spots that we definitely wanted to end up in geographically. And then from that standpoint, for me, I think I was just raised in a very practical family. Everything has to be with a purpose and everything. So for me, the next part of kind of setting my personal goals and factors to consider was my competitiveness and whether I was going to be competitive for a specific program. So I was able to look through a whole bunch of different programs and kind of figured out what would align with where my strengths were, what my weaknesses were, and coming up with a, a really solid kind of understanding of that as well. So definitely understanding our geographic preferences and understanding my competitiveness within the general field and within relative to other applicants within the specialty I was applying to was, was definitely critical. Um, and then for me, it was pretty nebulous beyond that because I know I wanted to go orthopedic surgery at this point, I'm undecided whether I would want to go into an academic setting or a private practice setting. So that really wasn't steering me to one way or the other. Whereas if somebody is absolutely set on being in academics for whatever specialty they're going into, there definitely is an avenue that is facilitates that more than others. So for those people, they would probably be looking at more academic type institutions to do their residency in, as opposed to more of a community type program. And if you have that knowledge beforehand, that is definitely something that is really valuable to have. Um, in addition to, to that, again, I was undecided on community uh, versus academic setting. But then another thing to look at, too, is unfortunately, beyond residency, there is fellowship. So mm -hmm. it's... It's tough because, I don't know, for me, my mind immediately starts jumping to things well down the road to get preparing for them. And orthopedics has a ton of fantastic fellowship opportunities, depending on what you're interested in and what you want to apply to. And fortunately for orthopedics is you kind of apply for that in your fourth year of residency. So it does give you a little bit of a buffer time to go about thinking about that. But if you have your mindset on one specific fellowship, you want to go into X, Y, or Z or say you're in internal medicine and you're absolutely dead set on cardiology, that is definitely going to influence the type of programs that you're going to be looking into. And that is your personal goal. And that's going to be kind of reflecting in how you're going about selecting these different programs. Because fortunately, there's, there's a lot of good data out there in terms of where to look. And you can always reach out to the program specifically to see what their fellowship match is. Mm -hmm. If you really want to do cardiology, and say you have a general preference for going to a community program, sometimes that's a little bit more difficult than if you went to a pure academic program. But if you reach out to a community program and they are placing people in cardiology at very significant rates, you can see their previous match classes for fellowship and they're matching a lot to cardiology, that can definitely be a good sign of, you know what, this program might be one that I want to include in terms of my application and prioritizing it. As opposed to say there's a community program their real focus is putting people more in internal medicine, hospitalist, more of like a family medicine, outpatient type setting. Well, then that might not be one that you want to go to. Everything else might align. But if your personal goal is, I want to make sure I'm going into this residency with the purpose of going into cardiology, pulmonology, endocrinology, um, nephrology, make sure you kind of have that in mind too. So kind of making sure you're taking a look at the fellowships as well. 
And then beyond that, I think it it can get even more nebulous in terms of kind of evaluating the culture of the program. Unless you do in a way there or if you have some personal connection to it, it's really hard to get a good feel for what the culture of a program is. And especially with the fact that we'll touch on this in a little bit later, more and more interviews are over Zoom and kind of seemingly going to be that way for at least the foreseeable future. For me, it's tough to kind of get a good understanding of how great their culture is. And I think a lot of it can kind of look homogenous in your mind as you're reflecting back and looking at your rank order list. But I'll I'll talk on that a little bit more in the future. So again, that one was pretty nebulous in terms of kind of what kind of culture you want. But again, if this is kind of looking at your own personal factors to consider, do you want something that is it's very collaborative? Do you want something that is very research focused? Are you somebody that for whatever reason you need people around you that kind of have an edge and are kind of always on the ball because that makes you raise your game, makes you study harder, makes you become a better version of yourself? Do you need that? Or are there some people in that kind of setting where it doesn't work for them? Having people kind of always on the ball, very hawkish around them, it definitely is not valuable for them. It makes them kind of retreat inward. It does not make them comfortable. It expends more energy than they really need to in terms of managing the stress associated with that. For them, they'd be like, you know what, having a more comfortable kind of a family feel, really kind of easy to get along with people is definitely going to be more valuable for them as well. Um, In addition, there's just a lot of other things to consider in terms of the curriculums of every single program is set up in one way versus another, and there's some nuances that might appeal to you for one versus another. So kind of understanding what you might be looking for from a a curriculum standpoint, too. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, definitely the geographic location, in addition to kind of just kind of I was understanding how competitive I was relative to other applicants, that was really huge for me. And then a lot of it was really nebulous in terms of kind of fellowship, kind of understanding, do I want to go into academics at some point? And then kind of everything beyond that was kind of, I don't know if it was like secondary to it, but I wasn't quite as able to kind of pin down exactly what I wanted compared to those first two. I definitely agree with everything you said. Um, I found that I had a pretty similar experience when I was introspectively looking and figuring out what I need in a residency program. Um, So for me, geography was huge. Um, so I'm born and raised in South Florida. I plan to practice my entire career down here. Um, so I was really hoping to be able to stay down here, get more in tune with the patient population, just understanding and helping the community. And at the same time, building those professional connections that will help me as I be, go on into becoming an attending. Um, so that was a giant factor. And then beyond that, I, I have all my friends and family here. Um, so it was definitely very high on the top of my list to try and stay closer to home. Um, and then in addition to that, I mean, yeah, like career goals, you, you got to think about what you need to, to achieve what you're looking for. Um, so for example, certain programs, I, so I'm going into psychiatry, um, and certain programs have very strongly emphasize, um, psychodynamic or psycho psychotherapy in, in their um, curriculum. And basically they well prepare the residents for that. Um, whereas others don't really emphasize the therapy aspect very often. Um, so it's really, there's, there's a lot of different factors that you want to think, okay, what do I really see myself practicing in? And then, okay, how is this specific program either going to help me achieve that, or is it going to get in the way of me achieving that? 
Um, so, so that's definitely huge. Um, but yeah, so in general, I would say there, there are some kind of common factors that, that you might want to consider when you're thinking, what do I need out of a residency program? Um, so we already mentioned geography. That's a huge one. Your career goals. Um, and an additional thing is, do you want an academic setting? Do you want to be working in the community-based programs? Um, that's, that's definitely a big factor as well. Um, we already mentioned the culture is huge. Um, in addition to that, um, how much, how highly do you want to weigh um, the reputation of the program? Like how, how much prestige do they have? You know, I mean, that's, that is something that is more important to some people than others. Um, and you got to weigh that in your own mind. Um, and then addition, additionally, like how well you get along with the, the, the people there, the residents, attendings, program directors. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different aspects. Um, furthermore, a lot of people, and just the reality of it, student debt is huge. Um, and so people also want to consider things like salary versus what it'll cost to live in a specific area. Um, things along the lines of, of benefits and, and uh, support that the program provides you. Um, and, and as Matt already mentioned, an, an excellent point of if you're planning on going into a fellowship later, is there an in-house fellowship or is there a, a decent track record of them going and their graduates going into that specific fellowship you're interested in? Um, all these factors, I mean, there's, there's countless ones, but you got to identify in yourself what is really important and what do you need and then that's really going to be the most important step to identifying what's the right residency program for you. Um, in addition to just looking inside of yourself, something that I found very, very helpful was getting the opinions of people that I really trust. So my family members, my significant other. Um, I mean, I, I had a lot of mentors that I had really just kind of consulted throughout this process to try and figure out. Um, what what do I really need and, and uh, really try and identify and label what I'm looking for. Um, and so I dug into the, um, the NRMP survey, basically um, looking at, um, uh, based on analyzing USMD seniors reference or um, most important factors when they were looking at a residency program. And uh, it's not a surprise that geographical location was the number one most commonly cited factor at 88%, um, closely followed by perceived goodness of fit at 87%. Uh, reputation of program was the third at 82%. Work-life balance was, um, was fourth at 74%. And actually there has been a, interestingly, there's been a recent trend of work-life balance becoming more and more highly factored in, um, in applicants' decision makings when they're ranking and, and preferencing programs. Um, and, then, and then fifth on that list would be the quality of the residents in the program was cited at 73%. So those are some common ones, but of course, it's, there's no one size fits all. Think about it to yourself. Um, and then kind of go in from there. And so once you've really kind of labeled what you're looking for, now you got to go find it. Um, so now that afterwards, that would be the time to, to go and just dive into different residency programs, um, look what different programs have to offer, um, and if you might possibly be a good fit. Um, so there are a lot of tools that you can try and use because there is so there is such a giant amount of programs throughout the country. 
um, that you really can't just do it by going to all their websites. Um, you want to be able to use some kind of searching program that'll that'll help you filter things down. Um, so Matt, what were some of your favorite tools when you were trying to look into different residency programs? Yeah, I think there's definitely a host of, of different kind of tools to, to go through. In terms of the way I really approached it was, it's really not the best option, but there's Doximity, which has kind of a rating of medical residency programs that's available. And for me, I kind of just kind of used it as kind of like a general grouping in terms of maybe these ones are kind of top third, middle third, bottom third. If that's kind of a crude way to look at it, all of them meet the exact same requirements when it comes to training uh, orthopedic surgeons, all of them have their pros and their cons, and it's kind of just a kind of a rough way to do it. But for whatever reason, my mind kind of just wanted to kind of look at it from that perspective. I think that may have been a little bit of a leftover in terms of when you're applying an undergrad, you kind of think of schools as kind of reaches, kind of middle that you're kind of a reach that you're kind of comfortable with, and then there's like the safety schools. And it's not at all like that when I was applying to residency. I was just kind of looking to get like a general idea in terms of how are these programs kind of viewed from an external source? Because I have not been at any of these programs. I really don't know anything about them too much other than the ones that I've had immediate interactions with. So that one, again, it's really not the greatest tool in my perspective, but it kind of just gives you an idea in terms of which places might have a little bit more funding, which ones might have kind of a little bit, quote unquote, more prestige than other programs. But honestly, a lot of it, it doesn't necessarily inform how their residency program actually operates or anything like that. So I did that. I don't know if I would necessarily recommend that people take a look into it. For me, I was just kind of more curious about it. And I think it was just more of a remnant of kind of, again, you're applying to medical school. You kind of think of things in terms of these are my reach schools. These are kind of the, the good ones to, for me that I might be able to get into and your safety ones. And it's, I think it was more of a remnant than that, than me actually kind of structuring my application in any way similar to that. So I looked at that and then I looked at Residency Explorer as well. At that point, I kind of already had coming to my geographic distribution, kind of already settled down in terms of where I wanted to be. So I was able to kind of filter down the programs that were within my geography. I put in all of my specific kind of applications from ERAS in terms of publications, scores on step one and step two, and then everything else that goes into it. And then it just gives you a good idea of how you're comparing to people who have applied to these residency programs in the past in terms of are you kind of at the lower quartile? Are you kind of right in the middle? Are you significantly above them? And then it just gives you an idea in terms of, you know what, maybe this program isn't necessarily within reach for me, or maybe this program, like maybe I, I thought it was way out of reach for me and it's actually kind of right, right within what my scores are and how competitive I am as an applicant too. So it can kind of open some doors to you to maybe you weren't considering applying to a specific residency for whatever reason, or it could be like, you know what, I had my heart set on this residency from kind of day one when I went into medical school. I always wanted to go to this specific program. But now looking at my scores and how competitive I am relative to the people that they take, maybe it's just not really an option for me anymore, too. So I think it's an excellent tool. It's definitely eye-opening. You have to kind of approach it honestly and not try to kind of be overconfident in your application. Because I think that's one thing that a subset of medical students have that they are somewhat overconfident in how competitive they are for a specialty. And tools like Residency Explorer are a really good tool to see and really objectively show how competitive you are based on the data. 
And again, there's other factors that go into it, but just kind of from the data available, you can get a, a good impression of kind of how you're stacking up to how people have done done in the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one of the so residency explorer I think was my favorite tool throughout this entire process, um, and a lot of my cohort shared a very similar sentiment. Um, it's it's really unique in the aspect of that it takes data from all these different places. It grabs from six different organizations that are looking into all these different factors, and then it's putting them into one easy to use platform. So you you get to like as Matt was saying, you input your own stats. Um, based on what you had in ERAS, and then you can it can basically show you exactly if you're right in the like a quartile, if you're in the lower twenty fifth percent, like middle fifty, upper twenty five, like in in relation to different stats. Um, it's it's very very helpful. Um, and in, on, in addition to that, it's, it's I mean, publications, like your board scores, how many um, work and volunteer experiences you have, and then it directly compares those to, to other people who have already matched in that program in the previous years. Um, and so it's, it's super helpful. Um, and really, it was literally designed for applicants to help them make a list of programs. Um, so it, it does a great job of that. Honestly, I, I, at least in my personal experience, I think it's the most useful way to, to really start narrowing it down. And, and you can go based on geography. You can do it in all different places. Um, so like for me, I was really prioritizing staying in Florida. Um, I found a few programs that I didn't even know existed in Florida that I ended up applying to. Um, and there's there's a growing need for doctors, so there's there's an increasing amount of residency programs. So it's it's hard to keep tabs on all of them. Um, so so using this tool, these tools are super duper helpful, um, and I would would highly recommend. And actually, it was interesting as well that I noticed on the Residency Explorer, um, it even shows things like like how much paid time off residents get, um, what their salary would be. Um, it also shows the breakdown of of different demographics as far as like how many males versus females go there. Um, different, uh, if you are you a USMD, are you a DO, IMG? Like what the different trends have been in these programs. Um, so it's 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 really useful. It just it gives you a good idea for um, for how realistic it is that you might end up there. And yeah, no, that's definitely Residency Explorer is a fantastic tool. Uh, some other ones to consider. I don't know if other specialties have it. I've already mentioned it before. Sorry if I'm harping on it, but ORIN, ORIN for orthopedics, has very good data when it comes to kind of step one, step two score, publications, and kind of, again, kind of the likelihood of if you do an away rotation there, you're getting actually converted to doing a residency there as well. So I would hope other specialties might take the lead from that if they haven't already, and just kind of putting out more data there. So it's really good for medical students that are applying to have a really good idea of just exactly what these numbers are and kind of helping them to get a better fit because kind of at the end of the day, it's going to help the medical students understand how competitive they are, tailor their applications to those schools, and then it's going to help those schools kind of filter applicants and because then you're going to hopefully have applicants that are competitive for those programs applying there and might help them out as well and create a bit of a better fit too. But at least from the the medical student side, it was definitely really, really helpful to have. Uh, one other resource that I think was was helpful for obtaining information on residency programs is just their individual websites mm-hmm. that they put up for those programs. And 
I think a lot of this came kind of from the COVID era where they wanted to get a lot of information out to the applicants and the medical students that were applying to them. And I think they made a lot of their websites a lot more robust than they used to be. So you can see some really kind of some data points that I was taking from their websites was just kind of looking through their curriculum, understanding how it was designed, how much time are spent on one service versus another. And that's important if you have a specific area of interest in mind as well. I also like to look at the residents that are in the program. Where did they go to school? Mm -hmm. Do they have a tremendous geographic preference? I always like to give the example of a lot of schools in Texas that I was looking at. They have only ever had residents from Texas. And then if I'm looking at myself, I think to myself, am I going to be that one student that breaks a five-year tradition of not taking anybody from outside of Texas? And I think pretty much universally the answer for myself was I'm not probably going to be that student that's going to finally crack the, the Texas stranglehold from some of the programs. And, and that's just not unique to Texas. There's programs that definitely have a very strong geographic preference of where they're actually taking medical students from for their residency. And sometimes they'll take somebody from outside that radius every now and then, and then you can think to yourself, well, maybe that's a bit of a better option than if they never do that. But mm -hmm. if there's a program in the Northeast that only ever takes people from the Northeast, maybe if you might be interested in that program, and if that is like your ride or die program, that is your number one choice, you can apply for an away there, make it very clear to them why that's your number one choice. But the, the threshold of kind of getting over that is it might be a little bit higher than a program that is much more open to people from the specific geographic region that you're living in in the country. So that's definitely definitely something really important to, to consider as well in terms of understanding where they're taking the medical students from for their residency program. And then something I would always glance at too is just kind of looking at the medical schools themselves that they were taking from. Um, I do not go to an Ivy League medical school. Never was going to be able to get into that. My scores and my, my life dictated that that was not an option for me. And if they're only taking medical students from some of the big name, huge NIH funded institutions when it comes to medical school, then I thought to myself, again, am I going to be the one person that's going to finally break that tradition of them only taking from these very limited amounts of schools? I like to, my wife, my fiance thinks I think highly of myself, but I don't think that highly of myself. I did not think that I was going to, I was going to be that one to finally break through. So definitely take a look at that again. It's not the be all end all the way I interpreted it might be a little bit different than anybody else interprets it, but just kind of seeing geographic preference that the program has where they're taking medical students from their curriculum and a lot of detail on their website. They're putting it up there for a reason. And so you can kind of glean a lot from a program about what information they're sharing, what words they're using, what they're highlighting about their program. So again, that's not necessarily perfect as Residency Explorer when you're actually seeing the data when it comes to step scores and everything, but you can kind of get a good feel for a program from that as well. It's, it's an excellent point because, yeah, I mean, the, the statistics and the figures are great, but that is not all that you need to take into consideration. Um, and getting them directly from the programs themselves, like what they're writing, you really can kind of see, are they harping on a specific term? Like, are they clearly emphasizing something? And is that something that I want to be emphasized in my education? Um, so it's, yeah, like program websites are huge. Um, also, something that I found a really great way to learn more about programs throughout the cycle um, was a lot of programs had open houses or second looks, um, different things like that that you can either virtually attend or go to in person. Um, it really just depended on the program. 
And doing that, it, I mean, it's just, uh, it's another way to get valuable FaceTime and it shows your interest. Um, but on top of that, it's, you can ask as many questions as you want. Um, you can really just try and learn everything that you need to, to be able to make an informed decision. Um, so I would highly recommend, I mean, of course, it's, it's tough to be able to, to do that with every program, but the ones that you're really interested in and you want to be able to be certain that it's what you're looking for, um, it's very helpful. Yeah, there's just one thing I'd like to add about those kind of open houses, Q&A sessions, and oftentimes those are taking place kind of in and around the time that ERAS is submitted a little bit during interview season, but by and large kind of when ERAS is submitted and a little bit before where they're trying to give information to applicants is you're going to get a lot of these invitations. And I think at one point I kind of find them a little bit annoying. I felt like everybody was logging on. They were asking the exact same questions. I didn't find them particularly interesting questions after the first little while. I mean, mm-hmm. for like, for whatever reason, it just, my personality didn't necessarily click with, with all of them for some reason, but it was definitely a minority of programs but there are some programs that did take attendance during these Q&A sessions. Mm-hmm. So what that means is they're valuing people that are showing an interest in their program and they're actually specifically noting down that these people cared enough about our program to go log into our Q&A session at 8 o'clock at night and go ask questions, interact with our residents. And I can guarantee you that list of names was somehow translated in terms of when they were looking over applications, did this person show interest to go to our Q&A session? And if you can't necessarily do an away rotation at a place that you want to, getting involved, if it's a Q&A session or actually going to see the hospital can definitely be a huge, tremendous boost because you're trying to show interest to them. And Jonathan definitely did a good job of explaining that there's a little bit of a game going on in terms of the medical students are saying, oh, I'm so, so interested in your program. It's fantastic. And then the programs are like, oh, you are so great. We want you at our program. And then for some reason, they don't match up together when March rolls around, funny enough. So that game is going on. And for better or for worse, as a student, sometimes you have to kind of roll into that game and play it a little bit. And even though I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of a lot of these Q&A sessions, I don't feel like I gleaned a lot from some of them. Some of them were fantastically well done. I think I'm just talking by and large for myself. I wasn't really able to get some out of it. But there were some programs that were taking attendance, and then that translated them to them kind of viewing the people in attendance as having more interest than those that did not. So mm-hmm. even if you feel like maybe I don't want to go and join this one, if it's a program you're very much interested in, it's probably worthwhile just to, to go and, and kind of get some information. Sometimes it's not the most valuable. Sometimes it's very valuable, but it also kind of shows that you're, you're interested in that program as well. It's an excellent point. And, uh, and I mean, we've already said it. I don't think we can harp on it enough that your perceived interest is a ginormous factor in how they rank you. Like, say two applicants are evenly exactly the same, like they're ranked on paper, and they're not sure who to rank higher. Um, if they feel like one person is genuinely interested in the program, they're definitely going to rank that, that applicant higher than the other one. Um, so that it could end up being the make or break decision. Obviously, there's there's a lot of factors at play, but it, it's it's definitely something you want on your side at the end of the day. Um, but so so kind of going back to just figuring out what you 
or getting more ob- objective data from the pro- about the programs. Um, you want to like figure out when you're going through their websites, when you're asking questions. Um, you want to understand what type of community they're serving. How big is it? Um, what's the patient population that you'd be mostly engaging with in these different programs? Um, it's really, really important. And then you also want to consider aspects of like, okay, what what area is this? Like, is this somewhere that I would want to be? Um, what what's your call schedule like? You know, that's that's huge. Um, I found a wide range in between different programs on what their call schedule would be like. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, different people are looking for different things. Um, and that's the beauty of it is there are programs that if you want, if you think you're going to learn better by doing a very call heavy schedule, you can find a program for you that does that. Um, but if, if you aren't necessarily looking for that, there's, there's also a lot of programs available that have some lighter call schedules. Um, so, so it's, it's a hundred percent a factor you want to look into, um, and then again, just kind of what does the program emphasize? And you, the website is a great way to do that. Um, the when when they're giving you your PowerPoint presentations when you're on your interview day or or at the open house and all that different stuff, you're gonna notice trends. You're gonna see things that they're harping on, and I mean, you want to pick up on those. You want to take note of those. It's it's very very useful. And then furthermore, when you're trying to get more info about these different programs, it's not just the objective. You want to look into some, some information that be more subjective about these programs as well. Um, so it's, that's why it's such a benefit to be able to actually rotate at these programs so that way you can have a better idea of what's going on. You can speak with current residents when you're there, um, really understand what the culture is actually like. Um, I, I know, I mean, Matt already mentioned the, the one big happy family. Um, and honestly, you, you go to, to these resident meet and greets and what's your favorite aspect about the program always gets asked and it's always the people and they're always perfect and they never have anything go wrong. And like, of course that's not the case, you know? (laughs) So, so you want to, it's, it's very beneficial to be able to be there and actually see what it's like on a day-to-day basis and just how the residents, are they actually happy? Uh, that is, that was a huge factor for me is, is do the residents seem like they they have a quality of life? Um, it's it's definitely important. Um, and then additionally, obviously you're not going to be able to rotate at every single um, at every single program you're going to apply to. Um, but that's why they have these resident meet and greets. Pretty much every program has one. Um, it's a, it's usually the day before your interview. Um, right now, all of mine were through Zoom link. You just show up and, and talk for an hour. Um, some have a few programs gave me like a, a, a DoorDash gift card and let me order dinner and then we virtually ate dinner together. A few programs had like a virtual happy hour. Um, but essentially they're just trying to find ways to help you relax and just have some genuine conversation with residents. Um, I think it's their opportunity to see if you're a total weirdo <laughs> and uh, see if it's like a do, do not rank from resident perspective. Um, but, um, it's also a very valuable tool for you to really just kind of get a a feel for, for what the residents are putting off. Like, are they, do they seem happy? Are they able to talk glowingly about the program or are they kind of stuck or, and another big one that I was looking out for was when there were two residents 
were they able to like were they acting really buddy buddy or was it like one resident is telling us something about themselves and then is the other resident like oh i had no idea about that you know i think little things that you're able to pick up on just kind of shows how close is the group you know like are these people like actually hanging out on the weekends like i mean that's <laughs> everyone always asks do you guys hang out outside of work and everyone always says yes um, but that's not always the case. And that might not be what you're looking for either. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's it's really all there's a lot of subjective factors that if you if you stay vigilant to these little details, they're there for you to pick up on. Yeah, no, I think the, the socials that happen before interviews, often it's just the night before where for whatever, they'll, sometimes they'll send you a gift card so you can buy food like Jonathan was mentioning. But by and large, again, I think this is more or less the cynic in me. I'd I personally did not find a tremendous amount of value for the socials that were done over Zoom. I felt like there was always an awkward dynamic. I think there were better ways that programs structured that within Zoom in terms of some of them. You had breakouts, which I felt helped a little bit, but oftentimes I felt like I was just in a giant room with a whole bunch of applicants and several residents. Then the exact same questions would get asked, and then there was the exact same answer for the same. Every program had the exact same answer, and We've touched on them. We're like a family. I couldn't have done this residency with a different group of people, everything like that. And it's just kind of an awkward dynamic, too, because I think the students want to ask some questions, but they, the questions that they want to ask, they feel might make them look like a less quality applicant in terms of kind of just really delving into, like, what are some of the weakness of the programs? What really kind of grinds your gears what has been trying to be fixed for 10 years and has not actually been fixed at this program and there's diplomatic ways to ask those questions but it's it's really tough when there's another 40 applicants around you kind of all staring into their zoom screen as well so for me i think jonathan kind of hit the nail on the head for those for me the real benefit of kind of having it over zoom and it was it was tough but you could sometimes get a feel for how the residents interact with one another and for me there's different approaches in terms of what you value for kind of resident interactions. Some programs are incredibly hierarchical where there's the senior and below them is the junior and below them is the intern. And that's kind of how the pecking order is. And that's how things operate. Whereas other programs, there's definitely a lot more collaboration and there's really no fear of an intern talking to the senior resident and kind of bouncing ideas off of them and kind of having a good time there. So you can get a little bit of a feel from that when you're doing the Zoom socials as well. But a lot of it just depends on how they're specifically set up. Kind of sometimes they're kind of thrown together at the last minute and some residents join and they weren't supposed to join and other residents that were supposed to be there aren't there because it's a very fluid situation with their schedules, which the resident or the applicants definitely understand. But I think there's definitely some some fine tuning that could go on when it comes to the socials when it's done virtually. On the other hand, I had the, the benefit of having some in-person socials, and I think those are just tremendously more valuable. From my perspective, I was willing to spend the money to fly out, stay at a hotel, and then go to the social the night before and actually see the programs. Because while Zoom is definitely convenient, it's a great way to kind of equalize access to all the different interviews so somebody doesn't have to spend the money to go and fly out for me. If I'm moving somewhere for half a decade of my life, I want to make sure that I'm going to the right place. And I just could not find myself really doing that over Zoom. 
because there's just so many different dynamics that go into it. And a lot of these times they put the most friendly residents and the most friendly attendings out in front for the socials. So you get like a major selection bias where the person who's grumpy and makes the residents' lives miserable is definitely not invited. Zoom link was lost in cyberspace. The email did not get through to that particular person. So understand that they're, in addition to you trying to impress them, they're trying to impress you. And part of that can be making sure they're putting their best foot forward. And that's not necessarily how it always operates. And it's really hard for them to hide that when you're actually in front of them in person. You can see how the residents interact with each other. You can see the attendings going by. You get to actually meet them in person. You can kind of see their body language, their tone, how they go about asking questions. And you can get some of that over Zoom, but you really can't get the full thing. So for me, all of those expenses, just for me, they were justified. They're annoying to pay. I don't like paying them. But for me, knowing that I'm actually kind of in person interacting with these people, it's such a huge decision for me. And basing it purely on Zoom kind of was always a little bit unsettling for me because I'm moving my fiance, soon-to-be wife, over there. I'm going to be there for half a decade. I'm dedicating a significant portion of my time there. And I just I felt like I couldn't quite fully pull the trigger on any program to put them number one on my rank list without having seen them in person and gotten that feel. That being said, I think I'm definitely more of an old school person in terms of that. I actually like to be around people. Maybe that's my sales background or whatever that went into that for whatever reason, but that was hugely important to me. And I think one thing that I did at the advice of one of the interns that I was working with was for programs that had only virtual interviews that I thought would be open to me swinging by in person, I shot the coordinator an email and said, hey, I'm very interested in your program. Is it all right if I go to the hospital on X, Y, or Z day, I can go out to the area and kind of just get a feel for what it's like. And it was definitely a little bit nerve wracking because you don't want to, for me, it was like, do I feel like I'm kissing up too much or anything like that? But for me, it really just came from a genuine point of, if I'm going to live five years here for five years, I want to make sure I actually like this place. I like the residents that I'm around and everybody that I reached out to was willing to have me. So I flew to different residency locations. I went on tours of the hospital. The coordinators were always fabulous. The residents that I hang around with were happy to see me and show me around. They answered a lot of my questions. And then I got a really good feel for them compared to programs where all I did was see them over two hours over Zoom. So it's really hard to get in, for, at least for me. I think other people might be a lot different. It's really tough for me to like say to commit for those five years without actually being there in person and actually reaching out to those programs on my part, I thought was very valuable. And it definitely helped boost some programs up my rank list that otherwise wouldn't have because I definitely got a better impression about what they're all about. I think you made some excellent, excellent points. And yeah, and unfortunately, I think that's just a reality of the, the virtual setting. Um, it, it really does make it a lot harder to get a full grasp of the, like the culture there and how people interact and just get an actual feel for what it'd be like to physically be in that location. Um, but with that said, like the meet and greets, it, honestly, they do, they have the same questions uh, people say very similar answers, but you still have to go to them. <laughs> it's, they're, they're optional in quotation marks, but you have to be there. 
Um, so my point is you might as well try to like pick up on what you can while you're there. Um, and, and there is some stuff to, to look at and see. Um, but of course I, I totally agree. I, when I was, I had one in-person like session throughout the entire cycle and I felt like I, I gained so much more knowledge in a short amount of time. I'd be curious to get your, your thought on this when it comes to the socials for the programs the night before. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked with them about them a little bit now. And I think reflecting back, I never really kind of put this all together in my head, but I think looking back at all of these different socials, I feel like no social ever made me, aside from like the in-person ones and kind of that there, but from the virtual ones, no social ever made me rank a program higher it was only ever made me rank a program lower if I did not like their social or for whatever reason, it was not particularly well done or left a bad impression of the program. Mm. Did you experience something different than that when you had a virtual social and you kind of thought, you know what, this was a really great social. I'm going to boost them relative to somebody else. Um, so I, I had a few programs that were kind of in the middle of my list. Um, and I, I remember this one particular program. Um, they had us go into breakout rooms, and it was it was a longer, like one of the longer socials. I think it was like it ran well over an hour. Um, but it like it flew and going from person to person, and I felt like I really meshed very, very well with and like laughed with every person, and that's important to me. I want a program that I can be comfortable laughing at and like and not just take myself seriously one hundred percent of the day. Um, and, and they were emphasizing that. Um, and then they, for some reason it like came up that the, um, the PD was very motherly and like loves dogs and like has her dog come into her office when she's an outpatient and, and all this different stuff. And like that I did, it did stick in my mind and, and like my list was so long somewhere in the mid tier I was like, I don't know how to tell these programs apart. <laughs> so, so I mean, that definitely, I, I made a note of that, and that bumped them up significantly on my list because, I mean, I didn't know what else to go on at a certain point when there's two very similar programs in similar spots. Awesome. That's really good to hear, and I think it's important for people listening to kind of hear the different perspectives. Maybe I'm a little bit more in the cynical camp of things when it comes to that, but it's good to know that, I mean, there are people that are going to these socials, and it can definitely kind of shift one program above another and kind of bump it up a little bit. And then for, at least for myself, I think as long as you put together a respectable one, you are going to be fine in my eyes. I don't think anybody bumped above anybody else for that, but I can remember one specific social where it definitely had a negative impact of how I viewed that particular program. And there was a lot of different reasons for that. I'm not going to go into all the different specifics of it, but I think just making sure Pay attention for these. I know sometimes there's a temptation to kind of zone out a little bit, especially if it kind of drags on for two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, anything beyond that. But just kind of pay attention to it. Make sure you're engaged. Make sure you're paying attention throughout. And then just try to pick up on some of these kind of nuanced things in terms of, again, it's really tough over Zoom, but you can get a feel for, like Jonathan was saying, in terms of kind of what's the culture a little bit, kind of everything from that. And you can get somewhat of a feel for it but again I think like I said I'm definitely old school and I would prefer in person just about any day of the week in terms of feeling comfortable with where I'm going. I concur um, 100% and something else that I found interesting and useful to do um, that you might want to consider um, was I enjoyed discussing the program director with the residents when it's just the residents alone. 
Um, so obviously, if the program director isn't the best, they're not just going to go and trash them. Um, but you can see, like I noticed certain residents struggle to say nice things about certain program directors. And that is a really good indication of, okay, red flags are popping up here. Um, so so you, you could definitely, and the, you're, you're going to go to a billion of these and you're going to be able to, to get better at reading between the lines and noticing the difference when someone seems genuine versus not. Um, and that's actually another very large factor that, that Matt alluded to and I, I think is worth highlighting. Um, these programs are putting their most friendly faces in front of you. Um, and they're acting as friendly as possible. Um, so I was, I, yeah, I've, I've seen the stark contrast between the way somebody acts in an interview day and then in an actual hospital setting. And I've heard other people have that, that um, actual experience as well. Um, so, so take that with a grain of salt, you know, everything is, it's, it's all this weird game and, uh, and you got to learn how to play it and, and you'll, you'll get through it. For sure. I would definitely echo that. I know kind of just from my own experience and speaking with people that sometimes there's just one extremely charismatic faculty member, whether it's the program director and they are just somebody that everybody congregates around excellent storytellers, really engaging and then it's awesome because then you kind of leave that interview feeling like, do you know what? That was awesome. I could totally fit in right there. But then again, at the end of all of these interviews, just try to take some notes and everything so you can have everything kind of noted down because all of these will start to blur together a couple months down the road. So make sure you're just paying attention. Did you really like the program or did you just really like that one person who is incredibly charismatic? Hopefully there's somebody that you interact with a lot on that particular at that particular residency. But if they're not, if they're somebody that, okay, you work with them for three months total in that residency and that's all you're ever going to see of them, well, that's fantastic. Those are probably going to be a great three months. What about the rest of the entire residency? So make sure you're paying attention to that. Make sure you reflect on that as well. And then, like I said, definitely make sure you're taking notes as you go along because things are going to start to blur together. I think, at least for myself, I had a really good idea of kind of what my top kind of third of programs were going to be. And then it's, then I got a good idea of kind of what my bottom third of programs were going to be. And then that middle third just for me became an absolute blur. And I could have debated for just days about what order should I put them in. It all worked out in the end, but just do yourself a service of kind of taking those notes as you go along, just making sure you're kind of getting down the, the key bits and pieces because that can be make or break. And you never know where you're going to end up matching on that list and you kind of flipping something from, say, the eighth spot to the ninth spot and kind of doing those programs in one order versus another is going to impact where you do your medical training, where you're going to live for a significant amount of time. So just pay attention to that because that doesn't make a difference. A hundred percent. And thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that there's a lot, a lot of different places where you can get a lot of massive amount of info about these different programs. Um, before we go into how you're gonna keep that organized a little bit more, um, I did wanna mention, so we have we have this way of getting a more subjective feel like by talking to residents and you got these meet and greets, you got your actual experiences when you're, when you're there. Um, but another important resource that I found extremely valuable that I wanted to make sure to mention um, is some of your fellow classmates. 
Um, so, so if you and your classmate are going into the same specialty and say they have an away rotation somewhere that you didn't. Um, so, and I know this happened to me very, with a, with a good friend in my class, um, he ended up rotating at a program that I was really interested in, but I didn't have the opportunity to rotate there. Um, and he was able to inform me of a lot of misconceptions that I had about the program versus my, he showed me how different my impression of the program was compared to how it actually runs on a day-to-day -day basis because he lived it for a month. Um, and be that in a, a more negative light or be that in a more positive light, either way, it's so useful to get someone else's opinion from an unbiased like set of eyes that, that have been there and lived it. If you don't have that opportunity, um, try and use your friends as a resource. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people talk about um, different like threads online, stuff like that. But I mean, that's that could be hit or miss. <laughs> um, so somebody you know and trust would obviously be much more preferred. All right. So I think we've harped on a lot of good ways to to learn about these residency programs. And so it's literally a pile of information. It's I mean, depending on how many programs you're applying to, it is a crazy amount of info. So how are you going to keep that straight? Um, so first off, Matt, I'd love to hear kind of what your strategy was in, as far as how to keep all this stuff organized and how to not get it lost in the shuffle. In terms of having already interviewed there or kind of getting ready for the interviews? Both. Both. So in terms of getting ready for the interviews, I think I made sure that I knew everybody that I was interviewing with the day before. I think that was extremely critical for me to just kind of feel confident going into it and most programs will send you a list of the people interviewing you in a schedule several days in advance so you can kind of get a feel for what area they go into. So for orthopedic surgery, kind of are they pediatric, trauma, spine, anything along those lines. So you can get a feel for what specific specialty they're into. So that's definitely something where you want to know who you're talking with. It helps kind of just at least give you some comfort, understand kind of where they're coming from, their educational background as well. Um, also mentioning their educational background, I always like to look where they went to medical school, where they went to residency, and where they did their fellowship to, mm -hmm. to see maybe if there's any connection or something that I can bring up during the interview. Don't want to be over the top about it, like <laughs> stalk them home to their house or anything like that. But if you can bring up something subtly, it can sometimes go a really long way in terms of kind of making an impression and sticking out in somebody's head. So mm -hmm. if they went to medical school pretty much right where you grew up, Maybe that's something that you can kind of subtly bring up in terms of when you're talking with them saying, oh, in terms of my career and in going into medicine, I was born in this area and then I kind of decided I want to go to medical school and then that might pique their interest of, hey, this person grew up in the exact same area and then you start talking about different restaurants together and everything like that and it kind of opens up a, a brand new kind of world to the interview and makes it a little bit more casual, more engaging, more comfortable and hopefully a little bit more memorable to the program and Obviously, that definitely comes with uh, a little bit of hesitation there, too, where there are some people who just want to ask the questions, get a direct answer, and move on to the next question as well. So a lot of, I found by and large, a lot of the people I spoke with were really willing to chat and kind of talk and had a little bit more casual interview style, but there are those people that they want to ask a question, get the question answered, and kind of move on to their next question as well. So mm -hmm. understand that there are different interviewing styles that a lot of people have and kind of just from my perspective 
for people who are very much kind of a drill sergeant, they ask the question, I answer it. They ask a question, I answer it. And there's like a very formal kind of, I don't know if talking down is correct because there definitely is some aspect of talking down when you're in an interview because they have the position that you want to go into. But it definitely didn't make me as excited about a program as somebody where it was maybe a little bit more conversational. I felt like I really got along with them well. I could see myself working as a part of their team and I could see myself enjoying working on their team for three months or six months or however long I was doing that. So definitely making sure kind of the dynamic of the interview was, was important for me there as well. So I mentioned kind of just looking them up, kind of what specialty they're in and understanding their educational background. And then similar to that as well, oftentimes there's usually a write-up about what their hobbies and what their interests are. So if they're going to ask me about my hobbies during an interview, I might ask them about their hobbies a little bit too. <laughs> or if we have a hobby that overlaps, I'm not going to list every single hobby that I have. If they're a hockey player and I grew up playing hockey, the first hobby that comes out of my mouth is definitely going to be that I'm a hockey player. And hopefully that opens up a, a really good discussion there too. So really just kind of understanding kind of that perspective as well. The people who are interviewing you are human beings too. They have their interests, they have their disinterests, they have their strengths, their weaknesses, everything like that is definitely important to consider. I think another thing that I really looked at in terms of preparing for interviews was looking at their level of engagement when it came to research. So if I'm looking at somebody who has a ton of research obviously as a passion, maybe they actually have an academic position related to research at their particular organization or their particular university. I'm definitely going to make sure that I'm well brushed up and can definitely draw upon my research experience because if that's something that they value in their career, they're probably going to value that in terms of the applicants as well. And it, you definitely want to make sure you're prepared for that because I felt like inevitably if somebody was big in research, they're going to ask me about my research. And if I stumble through some of the projects that I did and can't explain it in an eloquent or interesting or engaging manner, you definitely feel like you're losing that conversation. And you pretty much just called their baby ugly because they love research so much. And your response to them asking you about research was so subpar that they've totally lost interest in you in terms of as a potential applicant to the program. So mm -hmm. definitely make sure you're, you're prepared on that. And then as a branch of that from kind of understanding the research side, and if the person's interested in your research, just understand your application. Sometimes you will be interviewing, say you're interviewing in February and you submitted your application in September. That's a good number of months in between there where you might not remember every single detail of your personal statement. You might not remember every single detail of every research project that you've done, every volunteer experience, what hobbies you put down or anything else that you added. So just making sure that you're really up to date on all of those different things so that if any question comes out, you're gonna be able to answer it based on your CV. I think one other thing I wanna to touch on before I wrap up is really just understanding some of the common questions that you get within that particular specialty. And I think there's a lot of common overlap between them and just having a good answer for that. So. A lot of times the very first thing they ask you is tell me about yourself and you should definitely have something prepared for that that really shows them who you are as an applicant and kind of how you ended up into the zoom chair in front of them or the actual chair in front of them something that's going to be able to be engaging grab their attention but also true to yourself you don't want to be bolstering and exaggerating or anything like that because they'll be able to see right through that 
Just be honest to yourself. Convey who you are as a person. You can throw some jokes in there. I like to throw some jokes in there during an interview. That's just my personality. But kind of understanding that you're really trying to convey who you are to them. Kind of when they ask you, tell me about yourself. And then just understanding other questions that are commonly asked. And then for some specialties too, often there is kind of more of an information-based interview session. And by that, I mean kind of they're asking you questions about the field that you're applying to. So for orthopedic surgery, there were some interview sessions where you would go in and you could always tell the person was sitting by their computer and they jiggled the mouse and they were about to show you some x-rays and ask you some questions about it. A lot of time they're just very basic and they just want to make sure you kind of have the basics of orthopedics. You went through your away rotations and didn't just nap through them entirely. There's nothing to really stress about them, even though you can definitely feel your heart rate probably going up as soon as you see that mouse jiggle and the x-ray pop up on the screen. But just make sure you're aware of that. If you're in a specialty where they like to ask those types of questions and maybe you feel a little bit anxious about that or you haven't done a rotation in that specialty in a while and the information isn't as fresh as it was when you're right in the thick of away rotation season, brush up on that a little bit before the interview. So just doing whatever you need to to feel comfortable. So when you're sitting across that person, you can be your genuine self and not feel worried about any question that could be coming your way. That's all amazing insight. And thank you so much for, for mentioning all of that. Um, it's, there's, there's a lot to think about, a lot to take in. Um, but I would definitely rewind that and listen to that again because that was that was very useful. Um, and let's see. So before we kind of go into some more general interviewing tips, um, an important part that I wanted to mention um, is essentially, so we were talking about obtaining all this information about all these different programs. Um, and essentially, I think it's really important to find a way to keep that organized. You're not going to be able to remember all those different things and keep all those different programs straight. Um, so what I personally did was just make a giant Excel sheet and I made sure to put different. So basically each program was in a different um, row and then in each column there was there was different like aspects about the program. Um, so I mean, so I, I could kind of split it up. I mean, you can you can really kind of put it the way you want it to be. Um, so I made sure to, to have different um, some different specific columns that I thought were really useful was first off, while you're in the application process, you want to have certain columns for different requirements of these programs. So like specific some they, they might specify how many numbers of letter of letters of rec they might want. Um, and they might specify where who the letter writers have to be. Like some just want three letters in general. Some want two from that specific field and one from a different field. Um, it's It can get very down to the nitty gritty for some reason. Different programs just have their own preferences. And if you want to have any shot in getting into these programs, you want to show that you're diligently listening to their instructions. Don't, don't put extra letters if they only want three. Um, there's there's a lot of different things. And so in order to keep all that straight, I made sure to, to emphasize that in my Excel spreadsheet. Um, and then you can kind of like, I would change it from like red, from red to green color coding when I made sure to assign the right numbers of letter rack. I would, that would kind of be my mental way to check off that box. 
Um, and then, and then additionally, um, we mentioned before the, the supplemental, supplemental, um, essays and applications. Um, so I would, when I'm, when I'm researching a specific program, I would look into if they require those. And if they do, I would make sure to note, annotate that on there and then make sure to, to turn that box green once it was done, because otherwise it was impossible to remember. Um, we'll, we'll discuss how many programs we actually applied to in a little bit. Um, but I applied to many programs and it was, it was just a lot. So I knew in order to have any hope of being successful, I needed to stay organized with all these. And, uh, I found the Excel spreadsheet to be a really useful tool for that. Um, additionally, um, I made sure to have two columns, one for pros and things I really stood out and liked about the program. And then one for cons and things that I wish was better, um, red flags, things that I will want to remember when I'm looking back about this program, like what what was some of my general takeaways? Um, because as Matt mentioned, uh, you're going to do a bunch of interviews, and by the time you're sitting there making your rank list, um, so obviously you're going to know which programs are like your top, top, and which ones you're like, no way. <laughs> but there can be a significant chunk in the middle that all blend together, and if you if you interviewed in mid October and it's it's like the end of February, it could definitely all these different programs can start blending together. Um, so having this spreadsheet to rely on and look back on and really, um, I was able to to I also had a section of just like my general impression after the after the interview and and how I felt the day went, and if I felt like I would be a good fit or like things that. I, it would basically be like a little note to myself for when I'm ranking. Like, hey, make sure you remember this about this specific program. Um, and yeah, and then and also I I was able to um, when I was filling out those columns, I would also kind of write in a little note about if there was something interesting about my interviewer that that we discussed that I wanted to to make sure to mention in a thank you note later. Um, that was a good place for me to keep that organized as well. Um, so obviously, I so I found that to be a very successful strategy and a way to keep organized. Um, you definitely don't wouldn't have to do it, but I would consider it. And also, you can totally set up these different rows and columns to your liking and whatever like works for you and whatever you'd actually use. Um, so I originally asked the question poorly, Matt, but I was curious, did you use a spreadsheet or how did you keep the, those kind of stuff organized? Okay, got it. Sorry about that. I think you asked it just fine. I just misinterpreted it. Um, I think I am envious of your spreadsheet because I <laughs> wish I had done something like that. I had something initially like that when I was going through about selecting specific programs, but I think my biggest regret was I didn't go through in terms of for ERAS submissions and kind of go through all the school-specific requirements. Because I, I mentioned it earlier that there was one program where they had a, a supplemental supplemental application that was due before ERAS was submitted. And I submitted an application to them in ERAS. And I guess I was my application was never going to be complete for them, no matter what I did after that point. So <laughs> just making sure you have everything kind of ironed out from that standpoint. One of my, my gripes about it, and no, it's definitely my fault, but there's so much information and it's in different spots. Not all of the information is within ERAS. So like these additional school-specific applications aren't listed within ERAS by and large. I don't think I came across any that actually were. 
These were listed on the actual residency program's website saying, if you want to apply to our residency program, you need to fill out this and it has a due date on it. And then I said, so after you submit your application, some of them will email you saying, please submit, complete this additional application for our program. Some of them will never send that email and you still need to figure out that you need to submit the additional school specific application. And then some have it due before even you have to submit ERAS. So there would be no email saying, go ahead and submit this. So making sure you're looking at each and every residency program's website and just making a note within a spreadsheet or however you want to stay organized of all of the schools or the residency program specific requirements that you need to fill out. Because I gave the example of the supplemental application that required it to be submitted before your ERAS submission. There was also one program that had a stipulation in terms of its requirement is within the personal statement that you submit on ERAS, tell us why you want this program specifically. Oh. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, I just did like the generic personal statement, applied it to all the different program and blasted it out. And then I saw that after the fact, I'm like, oh gosh, well, there's just one program I applied to that thinks that I'm illiterate and unable to actually read instructions. So I kind of wrote that one off and maybe prematurely did like a little red line in my spreadsheet saying I'm going to get rejected at this point. So definitely make sure you're, you're taking advantage of, they put all this information online for you. It's a little bit frustrating that it's not centralized in one specific location, but you just need to hold yourself accountable, spend a chunk of time going through all the programs that you want to apply to, build that spreadsheet, making sure you have all the different requirements that they're asking of you. And then you can go through ERAS and assign the specific number of letters, the type of letters that they want. Make sure if they have that personal statement requirement, add a little blurb at the end in terms of why they're the best program that exists. Just joking, but just definitely make sure you're taking into account all of these different factors because, I mean, I was lucky enough to match, but if I did not match, I think I'd be kicking myself right now in terms of could I have done it at this one program that I was just for whatever reason didn't look at their website to include this or that or whatever as part of my application. So you don't want to be in that position where you did your best, you did everything, you applied, unfortunately you didn't match anywhere. And then there was just like those one or two things where it's like, well, maybe if I did this a little bit differently, I would have matched there. So just set yourself up to absolutely never have that situation happen to you. Be organized, make sure you're aware of everything that you need to submit. So if ever that time does come and for whatever reason you didn't match or to any program or you didn't match. So you want to make sure you can kind of sit down and be like, you know what, I, I actually did my best. This was, I can obviously kind of game plan moving forward, but I'm sitting here right now knowing I had a strategy that I really believed in, had a lot of different input that went into it and it just didn't work out for whatever reason. And I can pivot for next year and kind of come up with what works best for me. But yeah, no, I'm definitely really happy that I matched. And if I did not match, I would be thinking of those two specific programs as I'm laying in bed, not sleeping. So definitely, definitely stay organized. And then I was relatively organized aside from that one thing. I just wish I considered it in advance. I had kind of all the different programs, um, kind of all their step requirements and everything outlined too. And I did the exact same thing when I was planning for my away rotations in terms of kind of what weeks they had available and see if I could fit the whole the whole jigsaw puzzle together to make sure the dates work out. But hmm. I think if you're following a template, definitely follow Jonathan's and not mine. <laughs> but hey, all that matters is you matched in ortho, and that's incredible. <laughs> that is, so you don't have to second guess yourself. Thank goodness. Absolutely. But wow, that's that's uh, that's some really great insight. 
Um, and so, yeah, so about all these, it does get frustrating that it seems like so many programs have these little like nitpicky rules that are almost designed to trip you up. Um, but really, I mean, it, it goes back to, again, perceived interest. And, you know, I mean, it's if somebody it, it makes sense that the program is thinking, OK, if they actually care about us, they're going to do it exactly the way they want it. And it's clearly a red flag for them if you're not following instructions. Like, what does that mean you're going to like or perform as as a resident, you know? Um, so you definitely want to make sure you you stay like within that what they're looking for and uh and just kind of take it from there. Um, alrighty. So, so yeah. So I think it's so once you have that program list, you do your you submit your application. You I mean it's it's crazy how expensive it gets depending on how many uh how many programs you have. Um, but we we already did a pretty decent job with like the different timeline and everything in our other episode as far as the ERAS application. But so so for the purposes of this episode, um, so we're going to say we already applied. We, we already looked inside of ourselves. We already found out what we need in a program. We already looked at different options available as programs. We made a, a comprehensive list of the different options that we have available to us. And then we applied to all the programs that we think were worthy and that we were interested in. Um, and now we're at the point where we submitted and now we're just waiting for those um, email or interview emails to come in, at least in my experience and many, um, many medical students experience, depending on your specialty. Uh, so Matt, I mean, that was, I, did we explain what that was on this episode already? Um, we were recently, we were, I can't even remember if it was, if it was this episode or last. I think it may have been last episode in terms of kind of the different timing for interviews mm-hmm. or. So, so just as a, a clarifier, um, so Basically, with with most specialties of medicine, you apply out when ERAS is due towards the end of September, um, and then pretty much very shortly after that, you'll start getting invitations to to interview with the, with different programs. And uh, in my personal experience, I was getting interview invitations from like the very end of September through I think mid January. Um, so it's very, very just random. It's they can just email you at any point, um, and it's it's kind of a stressful time <laughs> throughout that, you know. Um, and so Matt's experience doing ortho was was a little different. So I'll let him explain that. Yeah. So orthopedics definitely has the blessing and the curse of a universal offer day when it comes to to orthopedic interview invites. So. 95 plus percent of programs, I think that's about the number, it might be off by a couple percent, regardless, send out the interview invites on in some point in the middle of November at noon. And they kind of go from anywhere from like noon to two o'clock, they start coming out. And then there's a moratorium where you're not allowed to respond to those specific interview invite requests until 24 hours after that. So till noon the next day. And like I said, it's definitely... It's really nice. I, I think all specialties should go with it. I really enjoyed it. I think the converse side of that is orthopedics does it a little bit later on in the season. So there's a huge kind of waiting time and say that date finally does hit and you get a very few number of interviews and it seems like you're going to be unlikely to match. There's really not much you can do past that point. So definitely keep that in mind for anybody who's 
going into orthopedics or a specialty that has a similar type scenario going on there. So, mm -hmm. but for me, I, I just really like the fact that I did not have to constantly fear my phone. I did not fear my email until like 24 hours before that day came along. And then I got a little bit anxious about it. And then you can kind of have everything shown in front of you. And then you have the 24 hours to, okay, I got this acceptance here, the interview on these days, I can balance it with this one. And then you can get your whole schedule planned out during those 24 hours. Of course, like everything, there's an exception. Some programs don't always follow the 24-hour moratorium perfectly, and it's first come, first serve. So make sure as those emails come in, you're really checking to see if they're talking about the 24-hour moratorium where you're not booking versus first come, first serve. For those ones, definitely prioritize getting on the schedule and seeing if you can kind of balance it with everything else going on at that, at that time in terms of interview invites. Mm. I think other things to consider... Uh, would definitely be for people who are applying to some different specialties. They have a little bit different of a timeline for everything. We're not going to talk about it specifically. We don't have the most amount of expertise, but ophthalmology, urology, as well as military match have some different timelines for everything that goes into it. So for anybody interested in those, definitely talk to whoever your mentor is, whatever kind of guidance counselor that you have within medical school to make sure that you're aware of those different timelines, just because there is a completely different way about going about things for those specialties. And I cannot talk about them in an educated manner, but mm -hmm. in terms of orthopedics having a universal offer date, I really hope a lot of programs go, go in that way. I'd be curious to see what would your thoughts be if, if yeah. kind of psychiatry went down that Avenue. I mean, that would be lovely. Um, so it's, yeah, you, you have to handle yourself very differently when it's, you just have that like looming sense in the air of, am I going to get an email right now? Um, and so the most important piece of advice I got throughout my interview season was to be ready. As soon as you feel your phone vibrating, like notice it. I, I have an Apple watch, so it was really easy to get the notification. And if it's an interview invite, you want to hop on your phone and book a spot as soon as you can. Um, because especially in the more competitive programs, their spots fill up very quickly. Um, so it's, you know, it's it sometimes they'll give you uh, like here, you can, you can respond within th this much time, but sometimes you go in there and then like literally there's waitlist only at that point. Um, so it's, it's super important to, to accept interview invites as soon as you can. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it would be, it would definitely be a benefit to, to have a universal like invitation day. Um, but I will say one positive of having it this way where it's kind of spread out over a long period of time um, is say you're like getting into the midpoint of interview season and there's a program that you're really interested in and you just have, haven't heard anything back. Um, you at least have the opportunity to reach out to them, really emphasize how interested you are in the program and how much you would love to interview there. Um, I know many people who have had luck obtaining interviews shortly after they reach out and, and trying to get one. Um, of course, it really depends on your individual situation and, and how competitive that program is like there's and how competitive you are as an applicant. Um, but it's it can't hurt, you know, and so so to have that opportunity to, to reach out and show genuine interest, um, it can go a long way if you go about it the right way. I agree. I think one other thing point I want to make about the universal offer day is for there's going to be an initial wave of interviews that are in, interview invitations that are sent out to applicants and then there's going to be kind of a trickle after that and I think I kind of struggled with how to interpret 
those interviews, that interview invites that came later, that say came a week later or two weeks later, I think I kind of got caught up on the fact that there is the universal offer day and they sent it to the people that were kind of at the top of their list. And those are the people that they really wanted. And then again, scheduling doesn't work out for everybody. It's depending on how many interviews that they get. And so some interview spots are declined and then they go to the next person on the list. And so I got several of those and I just, for me, I felt like they didn't necessarily want me. So I feel like it was good. I still took those interviews, went on them. You can always view it as an opportunity. You can prove yourself, move up their rank list. But you kind of, I felt like I was aware of, you know what, I'm really not in their top tier at this particular point. They've already sent out all the interview invites to the people that they wanted. And the only reason I have an interview invite right now is somebody they wanted more had a scheduling conflict. So then they went to me as a backup, which for me, I kind of actually like that because then I felt like I knew where I stood. I don't know if I'm interpreting that in the correct way. And I'm sure people will interpret it differently and probably say I'm incorrect in some way. But at least that's kind of how I registered getting those interview invites after the fact. Whereas if you're just doing kind of interview invites as they kind of go along, you don't necessarily have that same kind of opportunity to kind of know where you exactly stand within mm-hmm. the how they're thinking about you. For me, it was pretty clear like, the way I just thought about it. And like I said, I could be wrong about this is if I got one after the fact that's been like two weeks later, it's because they wanted somebody more than me. And that person didn't want them because they had to schedule something else on that particular date. And then they were going to me as a backup. So in some ways, it's definitely you don't feel so great about yourself because you kind of feel like maybe I wouldn't have gotten this interview if somebody didn't cancel. But you can't get caught up in that for too long. You just need to be excited for the opportunity to, to interview at the program. You applied there for a reason. You definitely want to be there. And then you just got to put your 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 big step forward and try to make a make a good impression for them on interview day. And hopefully you can still get an acceptance there. But I'd be really curious to see if ever any data comes out on those people that get the, the kind of the trickle in interview invites, if they match to any of those programs or not. I'd, I'm definitely interested in that. That's fair. And I mean, I, I hear what you're saying for sure. Um, but yeah, definitely. I definitely agree that you still want to take the interview if you can obviously maximize your chances. And I mean, it, it's still, if they asked you to go and in, invite you to interview, I mean, they must like something about you, <laughs> you know, cause I mean, at a certain point it's, and it, and it depends on your specialty as well. I think like some are more focused on like straight stats and some are a lot more focused on personality and how you interact with people. And if they think that you'd be like a good fit and like if they like you as a person. Um, so, I mean, in, in those kind of specialties, um, you can really make or break your chances on that interview day. You know, I mean, really on any specialty, you can make or break your, your, uh, your chances, but yeah, so I mean, it's it's very, it's quite interesting. Um, so Matt, you alluded to scheduling, and that is definitely something that I wanted to discuss here today. Um, so scheduling was something that I didn't really even think about during like the application process until I started getting all these emails saying, "Hey, schedule an interview, schedule an interview," um, and specifically. If you're over applying, so like I, I've looking back on it, I totally over applied. Um, and so I was just getting piles of interview invitations and you have to really be conscious and very intentional about how you plan these out. 
um, because there are only a few dates available to you. Um, and some, I mean, some programs have a lot of dates if you get asked to in, or invited to interview early on. Some might only send you an email and there's literally one spot. Um, so it really, really depends. And so something that I immediately, like after the first few interviews come in, started coming in, I was like, I need to make a calendar like now <laughs> because, <laughs> because God forbid I, I double book myself or like, you know what I mean? Put, put stuff where and forget that I accidentally or accidentally not realize that I, I put an interview on this day and, and uh, it, it starts piling up, you know? So, so you want to make sure to, to keep yourself scheduled out. Um, so I actually, I kind of had a little bit of redundancy to make sure I avoided making that mistake where I would always put it, put my interviews into my iPhone calendar. Um, but to kind of make it easier to see when my interview dates are coming, I also made a, a note in my phone and just kind of put them in chronological order, like when, who it's with and when it's happening, like what it's through. Cause there are all these different services that you can interview through as well, which we can discuss. Um, and also there are all these different services on how you schedule the interviews. So you can't just look at your ERAS calendar and think I have all my interviews on there because there's a third Friday, there's Thalamus, and there, there are all these different ways that you have to keep all these separate calendars. You got to put them somewhere where you'll be able to refer to when you're accepting or scheduling your interviews. Um, it's really important. And also I made sure to put the, the, optional in quotation mark events the night before the meet and greets make sure to put those on your schedule as well um, because they I would say almost a general rule is it's the night before um, but I did have a few programs that had it be different um, and depending on the um, the service that you're using to to book these like these uh, interview days and social nights and stuff like that some you have to individually choose both of those and so I, I know some people that accidentally made a mistake of thinking they were just scheduling an interview, but they actually just scheduled a social night and not the interview, and then they missed out on their chance to interview at that specific program. Um, so it's, I mean, it, obviously it, it won't happen to you, but I want to make sure that you're aware and just be very conscious of what you're clicking and, and uh and be like, just think, okay, is this interview happening? It should, your interview should be happening during the day. I mean, sometimes there's an AM and a PM slot, but this, this, I, I know someone that, that basically thought a social night was the interview. And, and, it, and, and in fairness to that person, the interview, like the, the um, description on it did say interview day. So, I mean, it, it, but that was an accident by the program and it was, it was just a whole thing. So you just want to be very conscious about what you're doing and don't just willy-nilly book things and then think about it later and hope it works out. I completely agree. And that definitely sparked my memory of when I was scheduling all the different interviews. And I think one thing that I thought was important to share was there was one residency program that had the option of interviewing virtually and then the option of interviewing in person. And it was kind of just listed, it was in Thalamus, but again, they're just different application services and ways that the programs keep track of it. And I think kind of sparked an interesting thought in my head. And I think I pretty quickly decided that if they're offering virtual versus in-person, it's probably better to do the in-person one. Again, I think that's just my, my bias there, but I think it just shows that you're very interested in the program. You're willing to pick up, fly, go to a hotel, 
you get to see the program and you're kind of showing your interest to the program as well. But then just from your perspective, you can really get a much better feel for the program when you're in person. So I think if ever you're kind of presented with that opportunity, at least the way I kind of view it, I would definitely opt to go for the in-person option. And I've heard a lot of residents say, well, hey, if you get the option of virtual versus in-person, definitely pick in-person. Jonathan, did you ever get exposed to anything like that in terms of when you were applying? Or do you have any thoughts of if they kind of have the dual option of mm -hmm. in-person versus virtual, which one to go for? Yeah, so that's quite interesting. Um, so I never had the option to choose. Um, I, out of my interviews, I had one that was mandatory in-person. Everything else was virtual um, in that 2022 cycle. Um, and it, it was interesting. Honestly, I, I really appreciated the in-person um, visit and like actually being there and seeing it. Um, it opened my eyes to a lot and it really changed my impression that I would have ranked them very differently if it was a virtual interview day. Um, so I was thankful for that. And I would say if I had the choice, I would like to go to them too. Be it local, be it far away, if it's somewhere that you're serious about, it shows that you're interested and willing to go there. It allows you to get the area better. I mean, there's there's all around positives. The only negative is the time and money commitment. I agree. Uh, another question that I had for you too is oftentimes medical students, and you said you overapplied and got a ton of different interviews. Did you ever come across a situation where you had a scheduling conflict where two different programs only had one day available and you had to pick between the two and just talk about kind of going through that if you did and kind of how you went about deciding what to what to do. Oh yeah, um, for that definitely did happen. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes it can happen pretty last minute. Um, like I've, I, I had a few interview invitations that were essentially for like a few days away. Um, so you better hope that, that you don't already have one scheduled because that then it's too late. You know, it's it's a, be considered really unprofessional for you to cancel last minute or or not show up. Um, that's that's a big no no. You got to make sure to to honor your commitments that you've already made. Um, but yeah, I I definitely had the predicament where I had to choose between um, only like I can only interview at this specific time at these two different programs. Um, and it was, it was an interesting kind of battle, you know, and like, um, so really I ultimately, the way I kind of went about it was I went back to my list. I saw like, I, I saw things that, that really interest me about the program, like, like pros and cons that I've, that I've thought of so far. Um, and really I just, I ultimately went with the program that I thought, I would like more. Um, and obviously things like program reputation was, was a factor as well. Um, but something that I also wanted to touch on that I was actually very pleasantly surprised by um, was how accommodating certain residency programs can be um, based on an applicant's needs. Um, so I actually, I know someone who, who unfortunately they, or yeah, it, it's, uh, so I guess it's, it's not, it's, yeah, it's an individual. Um, they, they had caught an illness that prevented them from going to their interview day. Um, and the, the program just completely switched around their schedule. Like they, they put them in the following week and they, they added an extra interviewer. They added extra time for everyone else. And I mean, it was just incredible to see the way that they were able to, to fit this person in and, help them out at a time where they really, there was 
their back was up against a wall and they couldn't do anything about missing. Um, so it, it was cool to see. And so, I mean, if worse comes to worse, you just, and you have that conflict, you can reach out to them and, and say, I mean, obviously you, you don't necessarily want to say, Hey, I, um, I'm unable to, or I I'm choosing another school over you. Um, but maybe just the aspect of like, I'm really interested in this program, but unfortunately something came up that I'm unable to make it and I would love to be put on a wait list or try and be able to interview at a different day. Um, and you never know. I mean, it, it's better than just canceling it and never having a shot at going there, I would say. I think that's definitely good advice. And when you were talking there, I was kind of going through my head in terms of, I was fortunate enough that all the interview dates that I was invited for I was able to kind of finagle everything on the calendar and make it all fit together and the only possible way that it could that I wouldn't miss an interview so and I was just thinking of other things that I would consider if I had to choose between two programs and you really just had the option of just picking one for that particular interview date I would think if you had any immediate connection to one of those programs I think I would prioritize that program just because I feel like you would have a better chance of matching there unless that interaction was negative, in which case, obviously, you'd switch to the other one. But if you have some connection to that program that kind of draws you there, I think you generally lean towards the program that, that you know and have a familiarity with. I think another thing to consider would be just how many applicants that they actually interview for the number of spots that they have. I think that wasn't something that I necessarily fully understood at the beginning of things, but it was something that I was very cognizant of towards the end, where if there's a program that has four slots and they are interviewing 100 people for those four slots, it's going to be very tough to be within the very top of those range of people versus say there's a program that has five spots and they interview about 45 people for that. The odds of you getting that spot are significantly better. And then again, obviously there's different factors that go into it. If you interview well, you interview well. If you connect, you connect. But just from a sheer numbers basis to mm -hmm. just the odds of getting into those programs are a little bit better. So if you're really stuck between these two programs and you really don't know what to do, you're equally interested in both. But say one program has five slots and they're interviewing 150 people and one has five spots and they're interviewing 50 people. Maybe just keep that in mind because the odds are a little bit better with that program. And if there's really nothing else driving you to one versus the other, that could be a, a good decision making factor to, to have. That's a great point. That is really cool. And um, going back to um, Residency Explorer, that's that's clearly labeled on there, kind of like what the trends are, how many people apply, how many people get interviews, and then how many spots are available each year. Um, so it makes it pretty easy to, to have it in one clear place that you can take a look at that and get it quickly. So it's, it's definitely very useful. Um, so next, as far as tips that we think would help along the interview trail. Um, so... On, I, we don't know how long it's here to st or how long it's going to happen or if it's here to stay for good in certain specialties. Uh, but virtually interviewing, interviewing through Zoom has been a very big reality for at least our application cycle and the one before that. Um, and so interviewing through Zoom presents its own unique challenges and benefits. Um, and we, we wanted to discuss that with you guys and hopefully share some insights after a bajillion Zoom interviews. <laughs> yeah, I can start with that one. I think I already gave my premature diatribe on kind of just some best practices in terms of getting ready for the interviews themselves. So I'm not going to go through that again. But I think when you're interviewing over the virtual setting, 
I think there's a lot of mind games that people play with themselves in terms of how do I set up my background? How do I set up my lighting? How do I do this? How do I do that? And I think it's important, but I think bottom line is you don't need to overcomplicate it. And if it's something that's starting to distract you, just kind of move on and just make sure the lighting's good. Make sure they can see your face. Uh, make sure the background isn't overly distracting. And I know everybody has their own specific preference when it comes to background. So that's why I really say don't beat yourself up about it a lot. There are some people who say when you're interviewing on Zoom, you need absolutely nothing in the background, nothing distracting, plain white wall, nothing else, decent lighting. And then there's other people who are saying, oh, we could have something in the background that's kind of can spark conversation, an area of interest. If you play the guitar, maybe you have a guitar back there. If you play hockey, have a hockey stick back there or just something that kind of shows your personality a little bit. So I think kind of just do what you're comfortable with. If you have something in the background, make sure it's not egregiously annoying where they're just going to be staring at that and wondering what it is the whole time. If there's something that you have in the background that you put there purposefully, because you probably put it there purposefully, make sure you can explain it, have something fun to say about it. Make sure it reveals something more about yourself and would add to the interview rather than subtract to the interview. And I like to, this is kind of funny to me. I remember telling my fiance about this. I was doing research for one of the programs that I was scheduled to interview at. And it was one of the, the directors there. <laughs> Uh, he actually had a recent publication on the do's and don'ts of virtual Zoom interviewing, and he was firmly of the opinion that you should have absolutely nothing in your background. So I was going through his publication, and I saw that I was set to interview with him, and I had my hockey stick in the background over Zoom. I'm like, this bad boy is going away right now. I read this guy's publication. He wants a nice plain background, and a plain background is what he's going to get. And he gave like a ratio of we want to see about a third of your body. We want to do this and do that. So I, br I brought out everything based on that publication I was absolutely ready for that interview but I think by and large just as long as you're looking professional making sure the lighting is good enough that they can see your face there's no awkward shadows making sure that your doors are closed so a dog or a cat doesn't come through and kind of smack your laptop off the table kind of just those basic things where there's going to be no distractions the lighting is good the background is either plain or definitely not distracting or something that there's there's something there that could be of interest to, to the interview and would add to the interview rather than subtract to it. Mm -hmm. all, all really good points. Um, the, the point you made about the pets is a really good one and uh, something that I learned the hard way myself. <laughs> um, so it was it was like right at the beginning of the interview trail and I was I think it was my very first one um, and I was just so focused on trying to do well and uh, and so I just didn't think I just I accidentally left my my bedroom door open like I had a whole nice setup going and, and the, the camera was looking good all this stuff but the the bedroom door left cracked my cat comes in mid interview I'm actually answering the question quite well I'm like impressed with myself I'm like this is going well and then the cat just starts like rubbing up against my computer and it's like shaking and and then they're just purring into the microphone I mean we laughed it off but I, I did not feel like that that boded well for me. Um, luckily, it was it was not a program that I anticipated to be near the top of my list. <laughs> um, honestly, it was it was definitely good to get some practice and kind of work the kinks out. <laughs> um, but yeah, that the the pets is is an important one. Um, yeah. So just in general, you really want to be thoughtful and plan out ahead what kind of a setting you're going to use for your Zoom interview. Um, and honestly, I mean, Matt brings up a good point that different people have different thought processes on what kind of a Zoom background you should have. 
Um, I mean, I personally, like I've had a few um, program directors that I was friendly with throughout my med school career. They all kind of mentioned to me in passing that a, a noteworthy background can really help you stick out and just seem a little different and help stick in your mind. Um, whereas a plain one can kind of just, I mean, it's plain, it's, it's not going to help remember you at all. Um, so, but then, then on the other side of the coin, you have people that, that Matt had who, <laughs> who did not want anything distracting him at all, um, which is fair. Everyone's allowed to have their preferences. Um, but so I don't think there's a uniform way to do it. I do think if you're going to have a background, do what Matt said, make it interesting, have it, have it be a discussion point. Um, I like, I had a, a figurine dolphin in the background. It was like a glass, like dolphin. It was all artsy. Um, it was, I had a nice, like cool little background of a, uh, kind of like a bookshelf combined with a desk. Um, and I, I thought put a lot of thought into it. Um, and I, I actually got a surprising amount of compliments on it and just like, Oh, I really like your background and, and, uh, stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's obviously it's not make or break, but it's a positive thing. So, so why not have that? Um, Matt already mentioned the lighting. That's super important. Um, you definitely want the lighting to be in on directly on your face from above and you want it coming from behind the camera. So like, so you want to make sure it's not from behind you. That's going to make you appear all dark. Um, and, and you also don't want to be sitting in front of any windows because that same problem is going to happen where you have that sunlight coming from behind you and the camera doesn't know how to handle it. Um, I know a lot of people who got ring lights, you know, like, like social media people get these cause it makes you appear really like well lit on camera and, and look better. Um, I didn't personally do that. I actually, I just had like a normal desk lamp, um, that I like propped up above and then put it kind of high up. So it wasn't blinding me as I was doing my interviews, but it was still lighting up my face pretty nicely. Um, so that was good. Um, other Zoom tips, you want to basically dress exactly like you're going to interview in person. Um, so don't just wear the shirt of your suit and, and jacket. You want to make sure you you have your your pants, your shoes, like just, just go all out because you never know what's going to happen and you might like accidentally like be taking a break, forget to shut your camera off and then now they, they see you're not wearing pants and that, <laughs> that would be a problem. Um, so, so just dress to impress. Um, plan it out well ahead. Um, make sure that you're not like, you don't have like sloppy clothes. You want to make sure your tie is tied correctly if you're wearing one. And I mean, there's, so there's a lot of, a lot of different factors to think about. Yeah. I would say some other things, just don't overlook the basics too. Make sure your laptop is plugged in. You don't want the battery dying in the middle of your interview. Um, I think another thing to consider if you know that you have really bad Wi-Fi at your house, maybe just plug it in with an ethernet cable or go to a place where you know that Wi-Fi is going to be strong enough because you don't want to have a kind of connection get choppy and you kind of miss a question and then it just kind of ruins everything downstream of there as well. Uh, some other tips that I think are important when it comes to the Zoom interview is just practicing. I think all of us are familiar with Zoom now, but I think there's a, there's a skill to actually looking into the camera rather than necessarily looking at the screen and it's tough because it's an artificial environment, but I think that gives a little bit better eye contact. And there's a way to do it, and it's really kind of weird to practice. But if you kind of practice it, and it looks like you're giving eye contact rather than looking down at your keyboard, 
And I know some people find that kind of valuable and they feel like the person's more engaged and there's really no significant difference in your quality as an applicant. But if they feel like you're looking that you're looking at them in the eye, it can definitely go definitely go a long way. A hundred percent. Yeah. Eye contact is huge. Smile as much as you can when it's appropriate. Um, that, that just comes off positively. Um, another aspect of that, I'm really glad you brought up that point of looking into the camera, because if you're looking into the eyes of your interviewer on the screen, you're not looking into the camera and then it, it just comes off wrong. Um, additionally, you want to put your camera up elevated to where it's about at eye level. Um, it's, it's kind of a weird thing you don't think about, but it looks really strange if you're like looking down at the camera and then they just see your chin and it, it just doesn't have as a professional of a look as if you, if you elevated it. I actually put like my laptop up on a box on top of a table. So it would like just be at that right height from, from my personal body. Um, and then additionally, you also want to have your cell phone charged and available um, because sometimes internet does fail. And I had that happen where an interviewer's like computer just totally crashed. Um, but luckily they just called me and we just finished the interview that way and it, it worked out okay. Um, we also wanted to emphasize things to make sure you don't do when you're interviewing. <laughs> um, because unfortunately, uh, so I've been told at least, Every year there's going to be a few people that programs interview and they put them on that do not rank list and it's it's for a reason, you know, because they, they think that that person would be a liability in their program and they don't feel comfortable possibly matching with them. Um, so first off, if they feel like you're not committed to the specialty, um, if, they, if they don't think that this is something you're going to stick with long term, they don't want to invest their time and resources into training you and helping you reach that next level. Um, additionally, so, so this was, um, so this was, these few different things was brought up by one of our advisors who was previously a program director. Um, at a residency program. And basically, he listed a few things that stood out to him as far as do not rank worthy. Um, first and foremost would be professionalis professionalism issues. So, I mean, you need to maintain or um, ethical responsibility at all times. It's huge. Um, and whenever you expect a few questions relating to ethics as well in your interviews, that was a very common theme that I, I ran into on the interview trail. Um, also, if they, if they found that their residents had negative interactions with you, um, that could definitely lead you, lead you to be on the do not rank list as well. Um, if they just find that you don't have interpersonal skills and you just can't get along with, with the, your cohort or with patients, uh, that could also lead to you not being ranked as well. I think that was a really good kind of comprehensive list. I really don't have anything to add there, but I think bottom line is if you're doing what has made you successful in the first several years of medical school, you're going to be fine for these interviews. Just don't do anything outlandish. And if you're staying true to yourself and somebody interprets it as being unusual or weird or something that they think is something that would make you not worthy of matching at that program, I think it's actually really good because then that selection has happened. I don't think you would have been happy there if you were being yourself and they thought you were not going to fit in. I think it was actually a service where the right thing happened where you're not going to a program where you would not necessarily fit in based on kind of how you go about doing your day-to-day. Your -day. Excellent point. 
Yeah, I mean, that's important. You want to be yourself, and you want a program that wants you for you. So I, I love that point. Um, we already talked about being prepared for your interviews. Um, something that I think we alluded to earlier, but I want to make sure is in this episode, is that when you're planning out your fourth year, um, you want to understand and research ahead of time when is peak interview season for that specialty, and then plan your electives around that. Either give yourself some vacation time or put yourself on in a virtual elective that is that is self-paced. Um, there are a lot of ways around it, but you don't want to be on an audition rotation with the program you're interested in and then having to try and miss days to go do interviews. Um, that is a very bad look, and so you want to make sure to avoid that, so you plan ahead of time, and then you, you can definitely make you can make a good impression and still make all your interviews. Um, additionally, we also already discussed that <laughs> that I think the most common question that interviewers will ask is tell me about yourself. Um, so have that ready. Um, a, a piece of advice that I was given about that is don't assume that the person asking that question has read anything about your profile. Um, so you want to kind of have an all-encompassing summary of yourself um, that's eloquent and concise. You don't want to ramble on for minutes on end and then the interviewer is just staring at you but not listening. Um, so you want to be interesting and not overly wordy. Um, so you want to practice that one out, time it out, make it like a minute, two minutes max, and, uh, and go from there. Um, additionally, the other question that pretty much every interviewer or someone on your interview day is going to ask is why would you why are you choosing our program and uh, so you need to to have that answer to that question well thought out um, planned ahead of time and and that's that's part of what that all that research you did about that program that's where it's really going to help um, but any connection you can make you want to you want to highlight every reason that you can that, that that you think you this is the right fit for you and that you're why you're the right fit for them um, let's see. you have anything you want to add no I think that's that's really good I think we kind of have given a really solid kind of overview of trying to pick the programs you want to apply to the process of kind of accepting interview invites the interviewing kind of setup preparing pretty much Make sure you're rehearsing, doing mock interviews, whatever gets you comfortable. So when those interviews come around, you're definitely well prepared. And then when all of that kind of comes together and interview season is over, you have to start thinking about putting together your rank order list. And I'll kind of talk about myself personally and my experience going through that. I felt like I pretty much knew what my rank order list was going to be from a pretty early time. I did not stress about my rank order list. I kind of knew exactly what it was going to be. I kind of flip-flopped a couple of programs in the middle, but I really knew what like my top seven was going to be, and I knew what my bottom three were going to be. And then kind of just filling in the middle was, I kind of debated it a little bit. But for myself, I didn't want to stress about that too much because I went through the interviews. I did my away rotations. I knew exactly what I was looking for in a program. I kind of got a good impression through the interviews when they were in person. And then there were the Zoom interviews where I felt like I was able to get enough information where I was confident enough about where a program would fall. So for me, putting it together was really easy. And I think that was just a testament to how much work I put in beforehand in terms of looking at the programs, doing my away rotations, 
kind of get preparing for the interviews, doing my research a little bit more on each and every program that I got an interview at. So I felt like it kind of just naturally fell in where I was going to rank everybody. I really didn't stress about it. I feel like I'm in the minority when it comes to that. I know I felt like I was a therapist for several of my classmates who were texting me about what should I do with this one? What should I do with this one? Should I prioritize the academic program versus what's close to me? My family wants this. I want this. And so it's just there's a lot of things that go into it. And I think I was definitely fortunate to not have to to go too crazy kind of planning out my rank order lists. But what was your experience with that? I imagine it was a little bit more complicated than mine. Yeah, that's that's amazing that you had it so like clearly you didn't have to worry too much. Um, I so I was in a similar boat where the the top of my list I was firm on. Like I think my top 7 I was I was ready. Um, my bottom of the list as well was super easy, but then I had a decent sized chunk in the middle that I was just fiddling with way too much, um, which if I can give some advice, it would definitely be like, I mean, you obviously need to think about it. You can obviously change your mind, but do it in advance of the deadline. Okay. So don't like wait until the day that it's due. Like I believe for us, it was March 1st. You don't want to be fiddling with it up until like a few minutes before it's due. You want to make sure that it's submitted, confirmed, sent, and like, and you can be done with it well ahead of time because it's it's just adding stress. And they always say that it leads to rash decisions that people regret later if you make those last last minute changes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say I was I was definitely feeling stressed about the middle of my list just because. There is that doubt that maybe my I go pretty far down into my rank list and and that like completely changes the course of my life, um, but luckily it all worked out. <laughs> and then one thing, just wanted to bring up when you're putting together your rank list, I'm not going to go through exactly how the match algorithm goes. If you just look it up, there's an excellent video that just outlines how the actual algorithm works. But from your perspective, in terms of if you're just bottom line, what you need to know you rank the programs in the order that you want to go to them. There's people who will say, oh, what if I kind of game the system? There's no gaming the system. The way the algorithm works is it's an applicant proposing algorithm. So all that means is you put the programs in the order in which you want to go to them. It does not penalize you. If you put a program lower and you end up matching there, it does not penalize you at all. All it does is it tries to put you in your very first program. And if that doesn't work, it tries to put you in your second favorite program. And it doesn't hurt you that... The program was ranked first overall versus ranked 400th overall. The match algorithm is going to work the exact same way. So when you're putting it together, you don't need to try to get into these crazy games in your head. The only game you need to be playing with yourself is which program do I like better? And the program you like better goes ahead of the program you don't like better. A hundred percent. And unfortunately, that is a commonly mistaken concept um, that, that is very important for you to realize. Do not try and outsmart the algorithm just like rank based on where you want to be. Your number one choice should be your actual number one choice. Um, that's very important. Um, some other aspects that you want to think about when you're ranking um, is you want to make sure that you don't include, a, don't rank a program that you're not actually willing to go to. You know, I mean, obviously it's, it's tough because if you put them at the end of your list, it's basically if you don't include them, that means you would rather go through the SOAP process and scramble during match week to try and find a match than go to that program. But if that's genuinely how you feel, 
then you should not rank them. But it's it's really up to you. Although the common rule of thumb is the longer your rank list is going to be, the higher your chances are of matching. Um, so, so it's kind of a balance between the two. Um, additionally, another mistake that can be made is you want to make sure that don't rank a program that you did not interview at. Like, don't think just because you applied, like, they might somehow magically rank you. If they didn't interview you, you're not going to get ranked there. So don't waste the space. Um, and yeah, as we mentioned, it's applicant proposing the match algorithm, which essentially means they try and fit you to your preferences. It takes more into account the, the student's um, rank order list than the program's. So, so keep that in mind. I think just some other things that to consider about rank order lists is at this point, I think a lot of people are kind of done through the hardest part of medical school. A lot of times your schedule is a little bit more open and you've got some more free time going on too. So it's kind of an anxious time of just kind of waiting. And I feel like you can put a lot of stress on getting this match list absolutely perfect or the rank order list, absolutely perfect. And I don't think there necessarily is going to be a perfect one. I feel like depending on the day of the week and what mood you're in, your rank list is going to look a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So definitely something important, but it's not something that you need to overly stress out about. Make sure you're aware of it. It's a very important thing, but don't go crazy about it where it stresses you out unnecessarily. Um, some other things to consider. Obviously, the longer your rank list, the better, like Jonathan was saying. Um, we've talked about a lot, but NRMP charting outcomes of the match has your likelihood of matching into a specific specialty based on the number of programs that you have ranked. So now that you've kind of gone through everything, you can kind of sit back and kind of take a look at that number and see how you match up relative to what has been in the past. So based on the number of programs that you've ranked and interviewed at, are you kind of in the 50-50? Am I going to match or not? Am I pretty much at a 99% I'm going to match there? And then that can give you a really good idea in terms of planning for what might happen moving forward. So if you didn't get as many interviews as you wanted, and it's a specialty that's very competitive and requires a lot, you might want to make sure at this time period you're kind of planning about, do I have a strategy for if I don't match? Jonathan mentioned the SOAP process, which is a way to fill students that did not match into residency programs that were not filled. And that's definitely an option, but again, there's generally going to be a mismatch in terms of what the students want versus what positions are available. And so more frequently, some of the positions that are commonly available are emergency medicine, internal medicine, uh, some surgery positions, more prelim are, are going to be available at that point. So make sure you're kind of aware of what positions are generally available in the SOAP and have a strategy in place because you have different options. You have the option to SOAP into a specialty if you do not match. Uh, you have the opportunity to do a research year as well, as some programs can actually defer graduation in terms of you can do another year, which kind of opens up additional opportunities to you that you might not have if you did graduate. So make sure you're just aware of all of those different options available to you. And if you're looking at your rank list and looking at the data, if you had, say, five programs on your rank list and people with five programs on their rank list matched maybe 35% of the time, at that point, it would be very prudent to start looking at that and kind of coming up with a strategy. And there's nothing wrong with that. And having a really good strategy can be important. So if you want to do a research year, the research programs really know that. And there's specific setups for people that do not match and want to go into a research year, where during that week, you can kind of start looking at different opportunities to kind of jump into that. 
And if you're in the position where you feel like that might be the case, it's worth getting your application ready for maybe a research year where you have letter of recommendations already to send out kind of a statement and everything drafted. So when, if you do match, that's fantastic. You just did a little bit of extra work, but congratulations, you got into the specialty you wanted. That's amazing. If you didn't match, you can kind of think, okay, do I want to go into the SOAP process? Okay, I'm ready for that. I have a strategy. Do I want to do a research year? Okay, I have absolutely everything in place. So when these positions are available, I can just start applying to them and get into a really good spot that's going to set me up for success the following year. Or is there the opportunity of deferring graduation, figuring out something else to do? A lot of schools don't offer that, but some do. So just make sure you're aware of what your what your curriculum says. So I would say, again, it's a very stressful time. Just be aware of the possibility of you matching versus not matching. Have a contingency in place. I was I had a contingency in place in case I did not match. So it's just something that I felt like was important for me to have a strategy in place in case it didn't happen. So I could just be comfortable knowing that whatever happens to me on that day, I'm going to be able to pivot in an effective manner. And fortunately, it worked out for me. But for other people, they didn't match where they wanted to. But then if they had a strategy in place, they're doing something phenomenal that's going to really set them up for the future. I love that idea of a contingency plan. That's that's really, really smart. Um, but you also want to make sure to keep in mind that you can do these take these steps to have everything ready but you it's it'd be a violation for you to apply to anything before you know if you've matched or not um so and that kind of leads into what i want to close with today um is pretty much there are certain violations from that students can do according to the nrmp and if you have a student like a conduct violation you are red flagged. You're basically going to have a very, very hard time getting any graduate medical training ever again. Um, so, and it's, it's simple things and it's mostly common sense to avoid a match violation, but still you want to make sure you're aware of them and do everything you can to avoid them. Um, so one that's not, doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but is, is um, you cannot give your login credentials to the rank order list. Um, the It's called R3. Um, you got to make sure you never share that with anyone. If you're trying to show someone your list, make a separate list and then show it to them. You don't want to like be like, here, log into my, my account and see what my list is looking like. Um, there, uh, applicants are also obligated to just act ethically throughout the whole process um, they are supposed to limit interview communicate or limit communication with residency programs after their interview. Um, they are allowed to ask questions and they are allowed to express the fact that they're really interested in the program. Um, but you're not necessarily supposed to just try and like, like unethically communicate with these programs to try and make them rank you higher. Um, and additionally, you are obviously supposed to rank and match with integrity and really just behave ethically in every every aspect. Um, and in according in the match applicant code of conduct, it also emphasizes the fact that applicants have to respect the binding nature of the match commitment. So if a match occurs, you have to be prepared to honor to go wherever it is you match. So that's why it's so important if there is somewhere you know, you could never see yourself being a resident, do not rank them. But otherwise, you want to maximize your chances of matching. So just rank them lowest. It doesn't matter if you put a program that you like aren't crazy about on there. 
if you just put it down at the bottom, that means you were not going to match at any of the other programs ahead of it. So just understanding the algorithm, um, it helps a lot. And so it, it's a lot of info. Um, oh, and also one other thing before we go is what I was glad that I learned was basically um, after you find out on match week, that Monday you find out if you're fully matched. Um, and then you don't know until Friday where you matched. So applicants are not allowed to reach out to any programs in that period in between. They're not allowed to say, hey, did I match with you guys or anything like that? Did you rank me highly? You just have to sit there in anticipation and wait until you find open your envelope and find out where you're going. Um, so I know that's it's a lot of info. Um, it's It's a big process, but honestly, it's something that everyone gets stressed out about, but everyone survives. You're going to get through it. You're going to do well. You're going to achieve all your dreams, and you're going to end up at the residency program that you're supposed to be at. Um, that's the most important thing I kept reminding myself throughout this whole process, and I couldn't be happier with the outcome. Um, I really hope that all of you listening who are going to be in our shoes soon, um, I hope that you achieve the exact program that you're meant to be at and and achieve all the career goals you have. Yeah, I definitely echo the exact same sentiment there. And I hope that, I know we covered a pretty large area in terms of kind of different parts of medical school, but I hope everybody was able to at least take something home and maybe learn something new and kind of just understand how they might go about doing things. And their way of doing things is likely going to be different than anybody else's. And that's perfectly fine. So just find a way to go through medical school, kind of come up with all your strategies as you go along the way. And as long as you believe that's a really good strategy and it's working for you, you're being honest with yourself, you're going to be in an excellent position to, to end up where you're supposed to be. And remember, trial and error, see what works for you, find people you trust and get advice often and listen to it. Um, and yeah, with that, we want to thank you guys so much for joining us on this this eight-hour journey. It's really been a pleasure. It's been very fun to get to know you on a better level, Matt. Um, and I really appreciate you guys listening along with us. Awesome. Thank you so much.